We are continuing in a series on the book of Acts, and we are preaching chapter by chapter through that book, and we are covering uh, all of the major highlights in that book. And as Chris Henson uh, so uh, so well articulated in his in the opening, the introduction of this book, this is Luke's second book. He has already written to the church the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. And this is his second book in which he is recording events that have changed the world. He's recording events that have literally changed the world. Now, all of us have witnessed or lived through events that seem to have a a big impact on the world around us. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were in New York City and we have visited there a couple times, and we've been to the 9-11 Museum on a couple of occasions and, and gone to that museum and kind of re-witnessed uh, those events, uh, which we vividly remember from our own years in college. It's one of those events that I think for most of us, everybody remembers where they were on that day because of how those events changed and shaped the world. And we've all lived through things like that, but there are, there are other points in history that we can point to that have had just dramatic effects on the world around us. We can think of World War II or, or World War I or the falling of the Berlin Wall, or we can go back even before that and think of, of all the kings and the queens who have reigned or who have lost battles or who have uh, the, the inventions that have shaped the world or changed the world. There are all kinds of events in history that have had an impact on the world around us. And it's sometimes scary, it's sometimes exciting to live through those events. But none of those events hold a candle to what Luke records in his gospel. And the gospel according to Luke. None of them change the world in such a fundamental way as what Luke describes in the gospel of Luke. And he goes on to describe in that book the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, all of the world had been created. The whole reason why the world was created at all was for the revelation of Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ as a child in the manger at Bethlehem. The incarnation of God Himself. His ministry on this earth. And then His full revelation at the cross of Christ. The cross of Calvary. And his resurrection. Those events changed the world. The whole world was made for that moment so that we, coming after those events, could see who God was, who God is. Those events changed the world. And in Luke's second book, he tells exactly how the world has changed. He begins to describe how we are to live in light of this changed world, in light of the fact that everything has changed, in light of the fact that the mystery of the world, the mystery of the universe has been revealed in the person and work of Christ, that we now are able to know God through Jesus Christ. In light of that, how should we live? How should we live? And the book of Acts begins to describe how we should live in that changed world. These early Christians are drinking from the fountainhead. They are drinking from the pure source. They have 
stood with Christ. They have experienced Christ. They have seen Him in His resurrected form. They have witnessed God in their midst. And their lives are changed forever. Who they are has changed forever. The whole way they view the world has suddenly shifted. And the Holy Spirit begins to move in them in power in a very real way. And where we left off last week in chapter 4, we we begin to see some of these changes. How this, this change in the way the world is and their understanding of it begins to change their lives in a very real way. And we ended last week with, with this powerful example of God's power moving in and through the early church. When, we'll, we'll just look back at uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said, any of the, no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own. But they had everything in common. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine a church body that was actually of one soul and of one heart. Imagine that. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in this community. And it's to such an extent that they have basically sworn off any of their own private property rights, any of their own rights to their own property. They've sworn them off and they said, everything I have belongs to this mission of God in this world. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not one needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each of them as any had need." I remember sitting with a a pastor friend of mine several years ago, many years ago now, and we were talking about this passage in Acts chapter 2, in which there is a similar passage, in which people are engaged in similar type of activity, and he felt the need to immediately point out, you know, that's not communism. That's not communism. And I think here in the West, that is somewhat of a reaction that we have, you know, here in the good old U.S. of A., where we are good, rugged individualists, we do have that tendency to look at that and say, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute, this isn't an argument for communism. I mean, no, no, and we're quick to dismiss that, and I would agree, we should be quick to dismiss that. This is not an argument for communism. But I'll tell you what, certainly not an argument for individualism. Certainly not that. It's not an an argument for individualism. It's not an argument for communism or socialism. It's an argument for Christism. You see, anytime you put this ism on the end of any word, what you're really saying when you you put that, that suffix, is that right, the suffix, on the end of that word, what you're really saying is this. That whatever comes before that is the thing of highest importance. And so here in the West, we tend to think, well, it's the individual who is the thing of highest importance, right? We're individualists. The individual has rights. The individual is supreme. And we're opposed to any form of communism where they say the the group is greater than the individual, right? That's That's the tension 
That's the argument. And you're right. The community isn't the thing of highest importance. And you're right. The individual is not the thing of highest importance. Christ is. And these people get that. They get it. They know who their king is. And because he's their king, they say his mission is important. His mission is of fundamental importance. And we don't have anything that belongs to us. It belongs to our king. And we will bring it to the apostles' feet so that it can serve the mission of God in this world. You see, one of the main features, one of the main themes in the book of Acts is this. Whom will you serve? Who will you serve? In many ways, and I think we could, we could talk about this for series after series, end on end, but the book of Acts, the Gospels and the book of Acts mirror very closely the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. Now, to describe this, let me put it this way. One of the main things that's going on in the book of Exodus is a great battle between kings. A great battle between kings over a certain people. There is this people, Israel, and Pharaoh says, these are my people. These are my slaves. They belong to me. I control them. And God comes in and he says, no, these are my people. They serve me. I am their king. And the question in the book of Exodus at the base of it is who will Israel serve? Who are they going to serve? Pharaoh, the, the king of this world, the most powerful man on the planet, or God? And so the question is, who will the people of Israel serve? And so God says, they're going to serve me. And Pharaoh, I'm going to show you my power. And there's this battle that takes place in the book of Exodus as Moses comes before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who says? Who says I have to let your people go? And God shows him, I say. And if you don't believe me, you get frogs. You get flies. You get dead livestock. You get boils. You get rivers of blood. You get the death of your firstborn. And God wins. And He demonstrates that He is the ruler of this world, not Pharaoh. That's what the book of Exodus describes. The Gospels and the book of Acts describe a similar battle. But this time, it's not between God and any earthly king. It's between God and Satan. Christ comes, and in the same way that Moses was able to do all of these signs and wonders to demonstrate that he spoke with the authority of God himself, Christ comes and says, I speak with God's authority as well. The same God who was able to destroy Pharaoh, I have that power too. I'm him. And he comes and he's able to heal the sick, calm the storms, walk on the face of the waters, turn water into wine, 
feed the 5,000. He's able to do all these things demonstrating that I am that God who struck down Pharaoh. And it's in that context that you can imagine why the disciples, why some of the folks who, who understood that maybe this was the Messiah were like, oh, I can't wait to see what he does to Caesar. Can't wait to see how he takes down Caesar, just like he did Pharaoh. We're going to be free again. And Jesus says, no, no. Peter, hold my water that I just turned into wine, and I'm going to go destroy Satan. Satan will be destroyed. The head of the serpent will be crushed. And my people will be set free. You see, Exodus is about the physical exodus of the people of God out of Egypt. And it's about God's kingship over the world over the physical world. The Gospels and the book of Acts are about God's kingship through Christ over all the spiritual realms. As Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual wickedness. And so this battle between Satan and God has taken place and Christ has already won. But just as God defeated Pharaoh, Pharaoh in his death throes, in his anger, after he's let the people go, he's still not finished. In his pride and in his anger and in his last attempt, he chases the fleeing Israelites out into the wilderness until he is finally and fully crushed by God in the Red Sea. And here in the book of Acts, Christ is one. His people are being freed. We are reading the record of the exodus of God's people out of the world and into his kingdom. But Satan is not done. Satan is not done. He has not given up. And we are about to read about his attempts. Most of the rest of the book of Acts is, is about Satan's attempts to destroy this young church, to end it, to chase after it. And God will destroy Satan and his works. And he will vindicate his people. But we're about to read here in this next chapter, in chapter 5, um, the first attack of Satan. We've seen just... In chapter 4, the mighty power of God at work, the exodus of His people out of the world and into His kingdom. We've begun to witness how that looks, the work of the Holy Spirit, but Satan has not given up. And we read this story in Acts chapter 5 of Satan's attempt to infiltrate this young church. And here's the story that we read beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself 
part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Do you see what's going on here? Satan has filled this man's heart. I mean, look at how deceptive that is. Look at the wiliness, the the cunning of Satan. Everybody in this church is selling the things that they have. And the, the ones who believe, the ones who really believe, have Christ and His mission filling their hearts. And as they are, He is filling their hearts, they are bringing all that they have. But you see how deceptive it is. Because here comes one that looks on the surface to be the exact same. But Satan has filled their hearts with a lie. And so they bring only a portion of the proceeds from the land. And Peter, through the Holy Spirit, knows and he calls him out. It's Satan's attempt, clearly, to infiltrate this church for Satan's purposes, for the purposes of destroying it. God protects his church. He protects his church and Ananias falls dead on the floor. And a few hours later, his wife walks into the same room after the men have come to collect her husband and take him out for burial. And Peter poses the same question to her. He says, did you really sell this land for only so much? And she says, yes. She falls to the floor. And the same men who buried her husband come in, collect her body, and take her and bury her as well. This is a harsh story. I've always read this story and said, wow. Wow. How, what kind of God does this? What kind of church is this? And then on the other hand, I'm tempted to say, hey, ushers, it's time to come forward and let's collect our offering. But this is a difficult passage. But I think it's important to realize what happens at the end here. In verse 15, in chapter 5, verse 15, we read this. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You see, what God is doing here serves several purposes. One of those purposes that God is accomplishing through this story, through this example, is a wake-up call for His entire church. Have any of you gone through an event or, or some kind of experience where it was a wake-up call? Or maybe you were taking things for granted for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden something happens and you realize, this is serious. I need to buckle down. I need to figure this out. I need to sober up. I think all of us have gone through experiences like that in life, and they're difficult. They're tough. I remember one in particular for me. My wife and I went back to Nebraska last weekend, and we were on campus uh, for Nebraska's first football win of the season. That's sad. Um, 
but we were there and we were enjoying ourselves and we were walking our kids around campus and kind of showing them some of the sights. And this week, because we were there, it brought to mind a, 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 an example from college that I had. And my, I got to admit, I mean, early on in college, I was not that great of a student. I was okay. I was average. But uh, it wasn't until after I met my wife that I started getting much improved grades. She was very much an encouragement to me, a motivator to me. It was through a lot of her encouragement that I decided eventually to uh, apply for law school, go to law school, and, and get accepted. And, and so I, have, I owe her a lot. But uh, my senior year, in my last semester of my senior year, I had already been accepted to law school. And because I'm not naturally the most diligent student, I probably got a bad case of senioritis. And I was... Uh, kind of coasting through that last semester. And I had one class, a psychology class, that I needed for my psychology minor. And I was taking that class, and it was a pretty easy class. That's why I picked it, of course. And I was, I was working on it and, and doing it and doing all the class assignments, and I found them pretty simple and easy. And there was only one really hard part of the class, only one difficult assignment. And it was a 25-page term paper that was owed to the teacher about two weeks before class ended. And of course, I did what you know, any not naturally diligent student does, and I procrastinated. I waited. I just kind of waited and waited, went through the whole semester, didn't really do anything on it, didn't start researching, didn't really care, until about two days before the paper was due, and I finally walked into the library for the first time, and I started reading some of the books that I probably should have been reading all along. And I worked on the paper, and I just did a really terrible job on it. And I remember one of the things the teacher had said, you know, in the beginning of the class, that this is kind of important. What I really want you to do is you're doing your paper is you really need to focus on proper citation. You need to give credit where credit is due. And I kind of, I kind of just fluffed that off. And I just wrote my paper, pulled in resources, didn't cite to a lot of them. Kind of, you know, I just did All I wanted to do was turn in something. And I didn't even, I didn't care if I got a 50 on it. Didn't care if I got a 60 on it. It was worth, you know, 25% of my grade, you know, something like that. I was like, you know what, I could probably get a 50 on this and still get a B. And so I did that, was, you know, trying to press print as quickly as I could to get it to print off the computer so I could run to class and turn it in. And I got it in, kind of threw it on the teacher's desk, and that was that. Thought it was, thought it was good enough. Until about a week before graduation, a week later, and a week before graduation, and my family is getting ready to fly in from, the, uh, from other states and come to my graduation. Of course, you know, law school was next. I was real excited about that. And went to the last class of the year with my professor. We went through the entire class. The final was the next week. And my teacher at the end of class, my professor said, you know what, Brent, I need you to come into my office. I need to chat with you. And I walked into her office and didn't know what it was about. And out of a folder, she pulled a, a paper, and it was clearly mine, although it was hard to recognize under all the red ink. And she handed it to me, and she said, is this your paper? And I was like, looks like it. And she said, did you plagiarize your paper? And immediately, I must have gone white as a ghost. I didn't know what to say. I was like, did I plagiarize? What are you talking about? I don't know. I mean, couldn't, couldn't even think of how to respond. And she said, I need you to answer that question. And I was like, I, I think it's really important that you're honest. 
did you plagiarize your paper? And it felt like at that moment, one of those moments where you remember the old choose your own adventure books? <laughs> you know, accept responsibility, turn to page 33, you know. Don't accept responsibility, turn to page 75. And in one of those two choices, you know, that's where the piano falls on your head and you die. You know, that, it's, a, it's a real short chapter. And so I was sitting there, I didn't know quite how to answer. And finally, I just kind of broke down and said, I am so sorry. I was like, I am so sorry. I was like, you know, I did a terrible job on this paper. I did not take it seriously. I just wanted to turn something in. This is my last semester. I didn't think it mattered. My intent wasn't to plagiarize, but I certainly agree. I did a terrible job. And she looked at me and she said, you know, this morning I talked to the dean. She said, and he gave me two options. He said, I can handle it whichever way I wanted, but he gave me you know, these two options. He said, one, I can submit this to the disciplinary committee, flunk you from the class, and potential expulsion or I can give you a zero on your test. He said, because you took responsibility for it, because you didn't walk in here and argue and, and try to pretend that you didn't do it, she's like, I'm going to give you a zero. And I have never been so happy <laughs> to receive a zero in my entire life. I, I, I you know, later I, I thanked her and said, you know, I appreciate it. I'm so sorry. You know, I know I shouldn't have done that. This is a good lesson for me. I'm really sorry about that. And I walked out of that office, skipping down campus and just so thankful. I mean, my life was flashing before my eyes. I was imagining having to call my parents and tell them, mom, dad, I'm not walking in a couple days. Sorry about that. All this is going on, and I'll tell you what, that experience, I'm sure I probably would have learned a lot about how the violence of video games affects youth. That was the to topic of my paper. I'm sure I would have learned a lot from writing that paper well. But I'll tell you what, I learned a lot more from that experience. It was a wake-up call for me, and I learned a ton from it. That's what wake-up calls do. And so here in Acts chapter 5, in the midst of this great success of the church, of the Holy Spirit moving with power, of all this success happening, a wake-up call happens. A wake-up call happens. And here are the effects of God's wake-up call. Here's how it impacts the church. Here's how it, it changes the church. Here's what they learn from it. Number one... The first effect is the defeat of Satan's plot to infiltrate the church. It's the defeat of Satan's plot to, to get his operatives inside the church who one can only imagine how that would have ultimately turned out, how Satan would have ultimately used these two individuals to disrupt the work of the church. So God defeats Satan's plot to infiltrate the church. See, everyone else is giving for the service of Christ. And Ananias and Sapphira are giving to serve themselves. Maybe they're giving for personal influence. Maybe they're giving for some other reason. But whatever it is, if the mission of Christ is not filling your heart, then, God, then Satan will fill it with something else for his purposes. But God defeats the purposes of Satan in this instance by 
killing Ananias and Sapphira by removing them from the body. But he also does this. He instructs his church. You know, going back to Exodus, one of the shocking features of the book of Exodus when you read it, and a lot of us go to it and we're shocked by this, is that after the Exodus, there are many instances in which we look back on that now and we say, God dealt in many senses with his people harshly, right? Harshly. A couple incidences. One, of course, is when Moses goes up onto the Mount Sinai and he is getting the Ten Commandments and he comes down and there are the people of God and they're worshiping a golden calf. And if, when you read the account of how Moses dealt with the people, it comes across to us as very harsh. There's, there's another incident in which uh, Aaron's son, the high priest's son, sons are have been authorized by God to enter His presence, and they have been given specific instructions on how they are to do so. And two of His sons, who who are commissioned to be priests in God's presence, come into the temple, and all that's said about them is that they offered unauthorized fire on the altar of God. And as they're doing this, whatever this unauthorized fire is, God strikes them dead. And when you read that, and Aaron read that, Aaron saw that, these are his sons, and he walks into Moses' tent and he says, what's going on? What's happening? And Moses reminds Aaron, this God that we serve is holy. He's holy. And we should serve Him as He has called us to serve Him. And here in this book of Acts, we get another one of those type of events. Here are people who, on our standards, they're selling a piece of property and they're bringing a large chunk of it to the church. I mean, if any one of us did that, we'd all be like, wow, that's really generous. But the intentions of their heart We're not to serve God. And God reminds everyone, I'm holy. This is not a game. This is serious. Examine your heart today. We serve a holy God. But the last effect of this incident is this, the purification of the church. The purification of the church. We read this in Acts chapter 5, verses 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, part of the temple. They were all there together. But read this, none of the rest dare join them. But the people held them in high esteem. You see, there was this group who weren't really believers. They were impressed by the success. You know what I mean? They thought, you know, the sanctuary looks nice. The worship music's great. 
Lots of cool people here, lots of interesting things going on. We really like them, but we're not going to join. Did you hear about Ananias and Sapphira? Nope. We're going to stay on the outside. People are attracted to success. They are. And they want to go there and they want to be a part of it for their own purposes. But that's not going to happen in the early church. Because of what's happened with Ananias and Sapphira, fear has come upon the church and everybody else who hears about it. And so there are people who are interested in the success, but are on the outside and they're saying, we're not going in. We're not going in. We don't believe. And it's not as if anybody stopped joining the church. As a matter of fact, in the very next verse it says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. See, this incident did not prevent people from coming to Christ. It did not prevent people from coming to the church. It prevented people who didn't really believe from infiltrating the church. It purified the church. There were the rest, then there were the believers who came in in larger and larger numbers. The importance of the purified church cannot be understated because trials are coming. Trials are coming. When Satan can't infiltrate the the church in this covert warfare, just getting people into the church that he can use to bring it down and destroy it, he begins to engage in open warfare against the church. And we read in the the next several verses here in, in verse 15, or verse 17, I'm sorry, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. Who do you think filled them with jealousy? Who do you think filled their hearts with jealousy? Who do you think filled their hearts with care for themselves and their own power and their own position and envy over what these successful apostles were able to do over here? Who do you think did that? Satan is gearing up for war against this church. So filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So there is a supernatural release from prison. The apostles are released and they're they're let go and they're given a very direct command. You go and you continue to preach the gospel. Return to the temple. And so the apostles go to the temple and they begin preaching again. And the next morning when the council reconvenes, they're perplexed. They're like, where did they go? What happened to them? How'd they get out? And they hear that they're preaching at the temple, so they send the guard down to get them again and and bring them before the council. But this time, they're a little bit more hesitant. They don't bring them by force. They just kind of shepherd them in front of the council this time. They're afraid to be stoned by the people. There's no fear of God in them. They're afraid of the people. That maybe if we arrest these men, the people will get us. And they're brought by the council, and they're afraid. 
And in verse 27, we read this, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with his teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You see their fear? They're afraid that all of a sudden the people are going to turn on them. And the people are going to get mad at them. If you keep preaching about this guy, Jesus, and keep saying, we are the ones that put him to death, well, men are going to come get us and throw us and depose us from power. We're going to lose our power and our authority. All of their focus, everything that's in their heart is about them. Everything. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. I mean, it is just crystal clear what is at the center of each of these parties' hearts. Who they serve. One serves themselves and by extension, the plans of Satan. And the others are there because Christ and His mission fill their heart. And all they care about is, doing the, is fulfilling the command that they received the night before to preach all the words of this life. We must obey God rather than man. The God of our Father who raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. We're not going to cower down from continuing to say you guys are the ones that killed Him, that you're responsible for His death. We're not going to stop preaching that because it's true. Whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior. We give repent, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. You see, there's this difference here between those who obey God rather than men. The religious leaders in this community obey men and obey Satan. These apostles fear God and obey Him. I can't emphasize enough what Peter says here when he says, we must obey God rather than men, for God has exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Leader and savior. That's the confession. That's the confession that we bring, that Christ is leader and savior. You see, it is possible, it is possible, ladies and gentlemen, to confess God as your Savior and not as your leader. It's possible. And when you do that, I submit to you that more than likely what fills your heart is not the love of Christ, but the love of yourself. When God is just your Savior, but He's not your leader, be careful. Be careful. Let me put it to you this way. Christ can be your Savior when you think you're worthy of saving. When you think in your mind, well, why, of course, why wouldn't God save me? I'm pretty wonderful. I'm a pretty good guy. Isn't that what good gods do? Don't they save people like me? And I know we don't really say that in our minds very much, but it is one of the most frequently asked questions that I get. Why doesn't God save everybody? 
Isn't that what good gods do? Don't they go out and save every single person? Don't they save everyone? And what's really at the base, what the assumption that's really at the base of that is we are all worth saving. And if God was really good, well, of course He would do that. He would want to. He, that would, that's the only way He can be good, is by saving us. When the reality is God is good whether He saves us or not. God was good before He made us. God would be good long after we were gone. He's not good because He saves us. He's good. And by grace, He saves us. And because He has given us this incredible grace of salvation, because He has promised to keep us forever, to sustain us forever, to purify us, to make us like His Son, has to give us an inheritance, to adopt us as children, because He has done that, like Casey said a couple of weeks ago, we are His men and women. We are His. And we acknowledge Him not just as our Savior, but as our leader. And we follow Him. And we put Him first in our lives. We put ourselves a distant, a distant second, third, fourth, whatever it is, but we follow Christ. He's our leader and our Savior. It's possible to confess God as your Savior, but not as Lord. And when you do that, you're really at the center of your heart. The apostles make this bold confession, and the Sanhedrin is enraged. They're angered. They want to kill him. But God protects them by putting wisdom, sort of, into the mouths of one of them, a man named Gamaliel, who was one of the more renowned of the teachers, who will later, later learn was Paul's teacher himself, the Apostle Paul's teacher, and Gamaliel begins to give them advice, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, before we kill these men, let's think about this, how many times has someone else rose, risen up in the past, and every time it happens, and he gives off a few examples, every time it happens, they're here for a little while, and then they kind of fade away, and they get killed, and nothing comes of them. He says, if this is not of God, then that's exactly what's going to happen to these men. But if it is of God, well, then we'd be opposing God. And that's not a good place to be. And so his advice, <clears throat> probably some self-serving motivations in there, but his advice is heeded by the council. And the apostles are beaten and then set free. And we read this at the end of chapter 5. It says, And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So they are beaten and released and they rejoice. They rejoice to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. The mission continues. They keep going. They don't give up. But more trials are coming, and we'll read about those in the book of Acts. So what can we ask ourselves as we, as we finish the sermon today, as we think here? Here are some questions that I think you should ask yourself. 
Who will you serve? Who will you serve? Are you going to serve Christ? Or are there some other motivations in your heart that as you examine your heart, you say, you know what, I'm really serving other things. Will you serve the Lord? Will you put Him as leader? Will you consider Him your leader? Or will you serve other things? Will you be content with Him just being your Savior? Who will you serve? Second question is, what fills your heart? Examine your heart. Examine your motivations. What are your intentions? And finally, what mission are you on? Are you on mission for your own glory? Or are you on mission for the glory of God and to proclaim the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Whose mission are you on? Seven and a half years ago, Casey Cease planted Christ Community Church. And even from those early days, he had a clear vision of what he wanted this church to be. Christ Community Church exists to glorify God by making followers, disciples of Jesus Christ who are going and multiplying. That's the mission of this church. That will not change. That will not change. People change. Over the years, I have seen the people in this room change and, and become different. But the mission doesn't change. I used to be on staff here. That changed. And every once in a while, you get to come up here and see me preach. That changed. The mission does not change. People change. The mission does not. We are coming up on a season in the church in which there are going to be some changes. The mission doesn't change. And as these changes take place around you, I want you to ask yourself this question. How should I respond to those changes? And I would submit to you that as you ask yourself to that question, there should be another question that comes right next side to it, right alongside to it. How can I respond in such a way that the people around me, the people that I'm friends with, the people that I have influence over, believe Christ more, love Christ more, and serve Him more? How should I respond to induce that response in them? That's the question we should ask ourselves. The mission is discipleship. The mission is to raise up followers of Christ. That does not change. It must always be at the center of our heart. Let me close with this. When Christ is at the center of your heart, He is both leader and Savior. When Christ is at the center of your heart, He's both leader and Savior. Let's pray.